0: OK, well, look, does anybody listening fancy a free case of beer? Because we only ask... Me, as... sir! <laughs> we can sort that out, sir. Uh, we only ask as we've just been sent one each by the wonderful Beer 52, and we thoroughly recommend it. Now, sign up with them, and they will send you a monthly different assortment of fantastic, original, and unusual craft ales from all over the world to try. Plus... Some bar snacks and a copy of the excellent Ferment magazine. Yes, because it's, it's not just from all over the world. It's actually this lot that you and I were sent are from Yorkshire. Well, they, they? they are. I've got, I've got a haul of, of eight, which includes Hopical Storm, Raven Hill, <laughs> Vocation. These are such great names, aren't they? Gold Rush, which is from Osset in well, Yorkshire. You Surely so your old who else, who else is from Osset in Yorkshire? Okay, Osset in Yorkshire doesn't have many claims to fame. OK, one is Stan Barstow, the novelist, who wrote The Kind of Loving. The other is David Peace, the guy who wrote The Red Riding Trilogy and so forth. And the third writer is actually me. I'm going to claim that. Absolutely okay. right. And the fourth claim to fame, actually no, late should be higher than the third claim to fame, is the Osset Breweries, which is represented in our sample there. It is. It is, along with the botanicalist, which describes itself as proper Yorkshire goodness. And the only one that I've drunk so far, which is one called That's My Bag Baby. feisty brew did you see that I went with that one as well very Austin Perth my wife proved very keen on that actually every now and when she comes home she goes are you going to open another beer another can of of she's showing showing more interest (laughs) in beer than she normally does which I I don't know whether to take that as a good thing anyway that's the deal no, it's great, and it's powerfully fruity, that one. we've, You know, we've come a long way since the uh, the days when you and I used to drain uh, 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 ales from dimple jugs in the 70s. <laughs> and I thought that I would test you out. The thing I remember most about this, those beers is the advertising slogans. Absolutely. I thought I was going to mention two or three and see if you can remember the slogans, right? So okay. what was the Double Diamond slogan? A double diamond works wonders, works wonders, works wonders. Double diamond works wonders. So so try, try one, one today. today. That's <laughs> absolutely right. Whitbread Pale Ale. Do you remember that one? Don't I don't really go Whitbread Pale Ale a poster campaign, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Oh, really? Remember those crimean Light cavalry having a cheeky half? <laughs> while it's becoming a cannon fodder. <laughs> Guinness had two. Do you remember the Guinness ones? Well, Guinness is good for you. Is, is, is Guinness is eye good eye. for you. It's fantastic. Yeah. Just, yeah. I was a bloke in a cloth cap trying to retrieve a pint of Guinness that had been, been, uh, been uh, nabbed off him by some wild animal, usually a crocodile or a lion or a rhino, rhino or something. Uh, and also Guinness for strength. Do you remember that? The frog man? Yeah, with, with uh, balancing a whale on his little finger. Uh, Guinness for strength, actually. The the, the one I remember, I, I, I've seen it loads of times. Is a champ walking along, actually holding an enormous, great iron girder. An above,
2: iron girder above his
0: head. I remember that <laughs> having having had a pint of Guinness. <laughs> They're really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the last one was Mackison. Do you remember Mackeson? Oh well, uh, Mackeson was uh, no, I can't remember the. Well, Mackeson, I think it was the voice of Sir Bernard Mars. I can't remember it. The Maxim was. It looks good. It tastes it's good, good, and, and by golly, golly, it does you it good. It does you good. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! I don't, today. I don't think you're allowed to no. say any of those things about beer. No, you could, you could. <laughs> and they're, they're, you. they're all health claims. <laughs> no, good for you're you. Not, you're not allowed to make those anymore. Not remotely. Anyway, I know, anyway, I know. We're not it's making any of those about about this particular beer. We're not, but we are thoroughly recommending them. And if if you fancy it, go to www.beer52.com forward slash word and cover the meagre postage cost cost of £5.95 to claim your free case now. And if dark beer is not your thing, you can choose the light only case and you can simply pause or cancel any time. So that is that address again, com forward slash word for a free case. Do it, you know you want to. Details below.
2: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Mark, great news. I have a Waddy game. That is good news. Courtesy of a member of the Massive, actually. This is sent to me by Blue Mountain via Twitter. And, right. it, and I don't know if you... You probably haven't seen this, but I'm holding it up now, if you can see it. It's a page of live classifieds from the Melody Maker. Oh, in, right. in January 1971. And so you've got a list of bands who are playing at the Lyceum, at the Chelsea Village, at the Sisters Club, and University College London and so forth. And, of course... In most cases, the headliners are names that are still kind of familiar to us, even if they're like, the likes of Every Which Way, which was formed by Blinky Davison when he left the nice, as no, of, right. I'm sure you re- recollect. You know, it's got the likes of Argent and If and Barclay yep. James Harvest and all those kind of people. God, I saw Barclay James Harvest, I'm afraid. But the names that are maybe less familiar and consequently more a um, bull. Are the names of the sport groups okay? So I'm going to give you some names of sport groups from this week in January 1971. All of which are real, apart from one. Apart from that one, I which ma- you have made up. made up. Okay. Go on, try me. So supporting Skid Row at Big Brother at the at the Oak, Oldfield Tavern in Greenford were Track T R A K T R A K Track. Okay. Yep. Supporting Barclay James Harvests at the Fruable Institute in London were CLOG, C-L-O-G, CLOG. Okay. Supporting Danny Longlegs at Sisters Club opposite Seven Sisters Tube were Gnidralog. Relog. Yeah. You, you got that one? Okay. Supporting Curved Air at the LSE were Highly Inflammable. <laughs> highly Inflammable. <laughs> And finally, supporting the jazz rock combo if at the Resurrection Club in Salisbury were sweet slag. Sweet slag. Okay, so you've got sweet slag, gnidrolog, track, um, clog, and uh, highly, I'm inflammable. highly inflammable. Well, look, I'm fairly confident that I'm right. So I'm going to give you my assessment, okay? Sweet Slag, it sounds ridiculous that there could have been a group with a name like that, but when you think of the Juicy Lucy cover and various other things, I think it's plausible. Highly Inflammal is just a rotten name, and it's just the sort of thing that would have been around at the time. Canidralog, I saw, I'm afraid, so I'm afraid to say I I know that they, they do exist. Track... Despite their terrible uh, spelling, um, I think it's plausible too. The one I'm absolutely a thousand percent confident you made up because it's the word clog. And that in 1971, people, among them probably me actually, were wearing white clogs. And me. (laughs) (laughs) I had a pair of clogs, they were terrible. Clogs and loons worn simultaneously. I think it's clog. You're absolutely Am right. I right? I'm sorry. I made that one up. No, that's because that, that's very I funny. actually forgot to give you another one, which was supporting Kevin Ayers and the whole world at the temple in Water Street. Yeah. Were crushed to Butler. That's crushed a good name. Butler. That's a really good name, <laughs> Crush oh, Butler. Oh, well, okay. If that's the case, case. That couldn't be more 1971, isn't it? I suppose it's so. Just, it's just absurd, isn't it? So, uh, thank you very much to Blue Mountain for sending that You can that date in. things precisely by those years, can't you? You can. There's a mate of mine who had a group in 1969 called Mr. Perkins and His Blue Hat, and that's uh, just 1969. That couldn't be 1971. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crush I Butler. Don't... Excellent. Uh, I had another idea for a, a Stoutworthy game, actually, which I haven't got round to doing, which is all groups in 1967, eight, nine, yeah. wrote at least one song, which is kind of in the tradition of semi-detached suburban Mr. Jones oh, by yeah, Man yeah, for yeah. You know, Everybody wrote a satirical song about a man who wore, wore a bowler hat, went to work every day. You it know, had a bit. slightly hall feel about yeah, it, a bit <laughs> jaunty. They, they all did it. They all did it. That's good. Uh, and that ought to be easy to, um, you know, to, to collect. A like that. Anyway, so uh, what I've got to talk about, I was going to talk about, can I tell you the story of Ben Sidron? Yeah, go on. I, Are you familiar with Ben Sidron? God, Ben Sidron, well, uh, he was a Yeah, I have one of his records once. Pianist, was he a member of, um, was he was a member of Steve Miller Band at the time of, of uh, Recall the the, the the Beginning, was it? Uh, so he comes from Wisconsin. And yeah. the story is, so he's kind of, I don't know, he'd be about 76 or 77 now as yeah. well. And he went to the University of Chicago in the early 60s where he met and formed a group with Boz Skaggs and Steve Miller and the group was called the Ardells.
2: Yes. And they were quite
0: popular in Chicago. But anyway... Boz and Steve decided that they were going to go out to, to San Francisco and wear them flowers in their hair and become successful. And, uh, and Ben decided he wasn't going to do that because he wanted to continue with his university studies. Uh, so they went off to San Francisco and Steve Miliband became a, a, a big deal and Ben Sidron kept in touch with them and Ben Sidron eventually went to study at the University of Sussex in, in the UK. And so he was here when the Steve Miller Band turned up at Olympic Studios in, in Barnes to make their, you know, their famous record Sailor and the one after, I think, with Glenn Johns. And so he was brought back in to play keyboard on a few things. you know. But he still, he wasn't really committed to the band. He just played with them occasionally, produced them and wrote songs for them and so forth. But anyway, at the end of all this, he went back to Wisconsin, which is where he spent pretty much the rest of his career, uh, where he became a lecturer in, uh, in music business uh, at the university and was also a regular on, on NPR, which is the kind of American BBC, if you like. Yeah. Where he used to present programs like jazz and so forth. So in between this, as you said, as you pointed out yourself you to make records you know and i've got yeah, a few he did. no he did i could slightly kind of i'm thinking slightly jazz absolutely tie. imagine yeah. something in the in the idiom of Mose Allison that's right yeah. no i remember them imagine an american georgie fame is yes. is, is is a quite yes yeah, slightly good, satirical slightly, Georgie yeah. little tunes. slightly yeah. tongue in cheek you know yeah and um Anyway, I've got a few of these records you know, that I've uh, picked up over the years and kind of liked them and, and so forth. And then I noticed recently that there are records by a chap called Leo Sidron. I thought, that's interesting. It must, be, it must be a relation. And I looked it up. Sure enough, it's his son. And, um, and so I started looking into how many Ben Sidron and Leo Sidron records there were. You're going to tell me there's 27. I'm not, actually, Mark. Um, so Ben Sidron has made records consistently since the early 70s in his own right... And I think I'm fair to say, it's fair to say that they are completely unblemished by the merest whisper of commercial success at any point. <laughs> What's they, <fun> did That <laughs> they probably had. They've had very nice reviews. Yeah, and yeah, people, yeah, People like you and me have probably liked them when we've heard them, and then we've heard them again for ten years or something like that. We thought, oh, there's Ben Sidran still making records and so forth. Anyway, I did a count up the other day: thirty-four. Okay, oh my Mark. God. Thirty-four Ben Sidran albums. His son Leo, I think, has made ten. <laughs> oh, absolutely, certainly. But here's the reason I want to just raise this subject. Yeah. This, this is ultimately not about Ben Sidran, although I do love Ben Sidran. Yeah, yeah. And I heartily recommend to anybody who's in the market for an American Georgie Fame, Ben Sidran. Go and go and listen to him. And let me tell you, you can go and listen to him. Because this is the year 2023 and because streaming and because Spotify and because all these things that people curse and say don't pay enough money and so forth and they'll never replace the record companies, every single one of those Ben Sidron records is available online right to now stream. for you to listen to Fantastic. for nothing off or for whatever you pay, you know, your, your streaming service or, or whatever. Now, I just think that's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And if you say to me, I'd love to ask Ben Sidron, I'm sure he wishes that one of them had been a hit at some stage. Yeah. Which if you make 34 records, it's a reasonable chance one of them might be a hit. And, and, you know, make a few quid, a a few quid which you instantly spend on making the next one, you know, which doesn't make any money or whatever. But would you rather one of them made a lot of money or would you rather in your the latter half of your 70s all 34 be, able to, of them, be able to look there and go, that's, my, that's my life's work. That's my life's work. It's all there. Anybody who wants to can listen to it. Look at what I did. I think that's just a it, remarkable It's really thing. fantastic. What might happen, of course, is that a researcher on a film project or might stumble across one of those and think that's interesting and that fits this and he might suddenly appear on a soundtrack and suddenly people might start talking about him again and suddenly you know it all might pick up you never but know I, but I, I, don't, I don't think it matters i think what matters to people is that nowadays in music you you don't not disapp- forgotten. you don't disappear yeah, you maybe you don't disappear. you used to disappear yeah. In the 70s and the 80s, people just completely disappeared. Yeah. Records came out, they got deleted, sold off or whatever, cut out. You know, you might find them out of bargain bin. you probably wouldn't. Uh, and, and then you were never heard of again. Absolutely. But yeah. I mean, nowadays, thanks to the kind of, I suppose, the iron grip of copyright, you know, somebody, some company somewhere is owning that stuff. And they just put it out there, you know. In the fond hope that there might be a tiny little profit in it as well. You never know. Well, it's just, it only works if you've got it all together. And the thing that it struck me, I was thinking about this, and the thing that, um, that it struck me that, that the kind of streaming deal most resembles is not selling records, which was the old way. The thing it most resembles. Is the public lending right payment that you get as an author? Yeah, with well, the libraries register, once a year, if yeah, you register, if you register with the libraries, they pay you once a year. You know, and I'm sure J.K. Rowling's cheque will be very, very much, very worth, much worth having. Mine might pay for lunch, you know, but I, I value it. It's great. And it's there every there this year. It'll be there next year. Yeah. We publish another book. It'll be slightly more, and so forth. That's what that stuff. That's what Spotify and all these streaming services are like, rather than being like you know the the, the, um, the traditional sales that everybody always has back to. But anyway, so I just think to myself, Ben Seddon must just repair to his room regularly. And just go and have a look. Go and have a look to see how many people have listened. Well, to see to see if he's got any comments. Or yeah, anything. absolutely. But, but to be able to go, I did all that. Yeah. Somehow I was allowed to make 34 records, and there they My are. My grandchildren never believed that I'd I, I done all this, and now I can uh, prove it. Absolutely. Probably great-grandchildren in the case of Ben Trudeau. Yeah. So, you know, more power to him, and, you know, more power to the streaming services for for doing what they're doing, which is just making stuff available. Because for years, it wasn't.
1: The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week.
0: And we're joined now by our Patreon birthday boy, Chris Lintock. Chris, we, the birthday was months ago, wasn't it, really? It was, but it, better late than never. Absolutely. And uh, so it's traditional that our birthday guests have have a log to throw on the conversational fire, so to speak. And yours concerns disc jockeys,
2: yes? Yes, it does. Um, and what they can do in terms of influencing taste, and how some of them can be extremely annoying, and others you like despite yourself. Right. <clears throat> so, so well, who are about- your favourites? I started off being very keen on John Peel. I used to listen to the Perfumed Garden from Radio London under oh, the big right. uh, And that introduced me to a whole world of West Coast music. But then I think he got slightly, determinedly obscurantist. So if it was obscure, Belgian nose flutes or whatever, <clears throat> he would play it. Um, and silly things like... One second tracks by Napalm Death, but on the other hand, that he... made great radio. That I remember him playing those; I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> like four, four moments of silence, or whatever. yeah, I thought they were really funny. Um, yeah, but he undoubtedly was extremely influential because he sort of fostered punk, didn't he? You see, I think I will. G- I'm going to go further. I th- I think John
0: Peel very influential. Not so much to do with music at all. John Peel, influential as a person, as a, as a presence, as a personality, as a way of talking, as a whole generation of my, in my generation, certainly, all modeled their way of speaking on John Peel. They all tried to lose their regional accents. Oh whatever, and all started doing that nasal rather deadpan thing. Was Sean Peel himself a kind of inventor? He invented that. Did you, b- you ever hear the early uh, recordings of him? He's actually quite posh.
2: Yes, but well, he, he was said, posh, yeah, he John was,
0: was a public yeah. school boy and he's this American recording. he's actually very posh. Here we are listening in Dallas, listening to the Beatles, you know. And then suddenly it was all this, you know. Yes. And, uh, you know, very good. And And I think, I agree with Dave to some extent, because I think he invented the concept of the kind of uh, professional amateur a kind of slapdash yeah. amateur, you know, because his whole thing was I've sat in the I sat in the studio and watched him broadcast sometimes. And I think he deliberately put records on at the wrong speed. He deliberately put the wrong side on. Just because he just made really good radio and it just yeah, shored up the idea that he was a not a
2: daytime DJ. You know? Yeah it brings the listener in. They think, oh there is the BBC actually making a mistake. Gosh and you know, I've spotted it.
0: Yeah. Well it's, it's also saying this is late night radio. radio.
2: This is late night and not daytime,
0: which are completely different animals. The, the interesting thing is, and I, I you know, Mike and I both spoke to John Peel on many occasions about stuff like this, and he would have he would have stoutly denied being anything you might call a personality DJ, and yep. yet he was. He was the biggest personality Probably radio more so on. than any of those <laughs> by a mile. That yes. was the match why you listened to hear what he had to say. Yeah. Not to hear his nose flutes being yeah. played. You know. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's John Peel. Now, who's your, you you said you got a kind of, uh, you, I think you said a prawn cocktail DJ. Well, before we
2: get on to that, I think Charlie Gillett was an amazingly influential DJ with his show on, was it? Um, or radio, radio, radio London. Radio London. Originally Radio London, yeah. 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 I mean, that
0: was fascinating. And radio Ping Pong yeah. was his little slot. Do you remember that? People had to bring in records and you played ping pong. You kind of said, well, I, I, I hear your, um, you know, your uh, Mose Allison track and I raise you this. I, that
2: was just, I'd learned so much from those programs. Um, and he did think that well, he, he broke dire straits, didn't he? he? He did. Well, he
0: played the recording. Yeah. And that was in the days. And it was only on Radio London. Because this was before the massive proliferation of radio. And so I think Chris Briggs, who was the A and R man, I think it was Chris Briggs or Dave Bates, I can't remember, just happened to be listening and rang him up and said, Who's that? And the phonogram signed Dire Straits and then went on to sell Squillions of Records, all as a result of Charlie Gillard having having played that in the first It was a the demo they sent him, wasn't it? Was yeah. Yeah yeah, it was. yeah, yeah. Cassette. So what what about your um what about your brawn cocktail then? You got a guilty pleasure DJ, uh-huh. have it?
2: Well, here it is.
0: Oh, you, yeah,
2: Tony. Well, we're... very guilty. guilty. Yeah, don't don't be guilty. Guilty. we're very fond of him. Yeah, I he, think... He plays great music. He yeah. plays great enthusiasm. Hugely enthusiastic. Yeah. Uh, and he just makes for great radio, but in a different way.
0: You see, yeah, I, th- I think, and I've known loads of DJs, one way or another, I think Tony Blackburn is the most sincere DJ, in the sense... That if he plays something, he's playing it because he likes it yeah. genuinely. Most DJs are not; they're playing it because they think it's cool to play, or it'll get in with the you know the authorities, or it'll do well, or all all those kind of things. Whereas Tony Blackburn has always, right from day one, his personal enthusiasm has, has been what's all what it's all about. And it's still amazing that there he is. Was he eighty recently? Yeah, he was. He was 80, and he still posts these things on Twitter every Saturday morning. See, it's Saturday morning, he turns up to do Sounds of the Sixties on Radio Two, and he posts. If you happen to be up early, he'll post a little clip of him going into Broadcasting House right. in the perishing cold and snow at about six in the morning. No earlier, probably in a Macintosh. In a Macintosh. And he's having done a six-mile run. He's, his motivations have never changed at all, Tanny Blackburn. You know, he just
2: loves to be on the radio. Yeah. Well, he's also a failed pop star, isn't he?
0: Well, I suppose the uh, the all were they all made, yeah, we all yeah. we'll
2: get off that train or something. Something like I that. I think
0: they're, they're, you're always contractually obliged to if you were a radio one DJ, because you were so well known they thought you'd have a hit. But I don't think he, I don't think his heart was in it. No, right I think Also, I think he's very influential, actually. I think he's probably he's probably got more people turned on to kind of interesting rare soul music than you know than than most other daytime DJs, you know. He's so like, anyway, God bless them all, John Peel, Charlie Gillis, and Tony Blackburn, who's happily is still with us. The word podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. What's the most pleasant, prestigious job? In cultural journalism, would you say, Mark Elland? I know the answer to this. Go on. Because very briefly, I did it actually for a living when I was at the NME, and it's film critic. Okay. All right. But but I'm more to the point. I'm going to be more specific than that. Film critic where? Oh, film critic at the New York Times. Film critic, that's New York the best Times. One. Because the thing about film critic is that you get that thrill daily of being in a cinema in the daytime, which feels faintly wrong, but it's Absolutely. very exciting because you're getting paid for it. And you've got a glass of white wine, you've got a handful of cashew nuts. Now, the reason we were going to talk about it was that um, Tony Scott, A.O. Scott, the New York Times film critic, uh, who I think started back in 2000, I think he's been, he's been there 23 years, I think he's been reviewing films for about 30 years, He kind of retired this week. He announced he was stepping down. I thought it was a really, really good story. It was a podcast about it, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought it was an amazing story. He talks about um, the main reasons. There are two main reasons. And one is the Marvel franchise. He talks about the fact that... I think he described the new Avengers film as a giant ATM for Marvel and its studio overlords, the Walt Disney Company. And he said, effectively said that the new film was rubbish. And there was, of course massive outcry, including Samuel L. Jackson uh, yeah. tweeting about it. And there was a huge Twitter storm when they were basically saying, we've got to find this guy a new job. And he made a really good point about it in the podcast, which is that these films, a large percent of the films being made now, are kind of critic proof. He said that, that there's no argument to be had about them. He, he talked about this whole idea of fandom, and I really agree with him, actually, because Avengers, Marvel, et cetera, don't really have you know, viewers as much as they have a fan base. And that fan base have decided that it's like one gigantic movie, which they approve of. And they can't, some are slightly better than the others, but the concept, they will not, they will not, they will not deal with anybody criticizing or having a go at it.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: And he says that uh, it, it's something so powerful that it crushes any dissenting voice, which I thought was a really interesting thing. The other thing he talked about was streaming, the idea of streaming. And he said, uh, you know, obviously when streaming took off, Netflix took off, Netflix started to commission their own movies and they were giving large amounts of money to people to make the films they always wanted to make. That's great in principle. But he said that, not only are um, you know, things the big success of the time, which would have been, uh, you know, Mad Men and Sopranos and Breaking Bad, not only is that soaking up all the time and attention of all the people who could be going to the cinema, but the experience of streaming, is it's exactly the same parallel as in music, is so different from going to the cinema. I look back at the films that i have mo- had the most impact on me recently, and they'll all be ones I've actually seen in a cinema. Because it's an event and you can go back and you can relive the whole thing in your mind. If, if it's a streaming movie, there's no great onus on you to go out and see it straight away. Um, you know, you're not desperately in need of a critic to tell you to do it. You will just generally find out through the ether when it's any good. And he kind of, his point is that is that film criticism is sort of redundant. And so that was really interesting, actually. It's interesting as you say this in the same week that Ed Sheeran yeah has suggested that there is no point in uh, album reviews yeah any longer um, because with streaming it's there for you to listen to you don't have to have somebody to just to help you decide whether it's worth paying ten pounds or whatever it is yeah to go to go and buy a CD. Um, And I think it's a perfectly fair point. Um, But the kind of, uh, the counter argument comes from two groups of people, two groups of people who really, really want there to continue to be loads and loads of album reviews and they'd like them to be on paper and so forth and widely disseminated. One group of people are the Thousands of people who make records that nobody will ever hear. Yeah. yeah. I.e. not Ed Sheeran. Yes. Yeah. And the other and is... They say, the, Well, the, the Observer didn't review me, you know. I exist. Look, Mum. Yeah, exactly. Exist. Exactly. Uh, and the other is the slightly less numerous group of people who fancy themselves writing those kind of reviews. The rest of us... We do do not give a hoot, do we at all? You know, I because don't think we do. I mean, I like the idea of I like the idea of reviews. I just don't read very many of them. It's like with film reviews but, i I never really read film reviews until after I've seen the film, and then I read the longest one possible because I'd like to get into the biggest discussion I possibly could. Well, famously, there's a woman I worked with on when we launched Empire magazine, the film magazine, years ago, and she said something I still think is so true. She said this years ago. Before you've seen the film, the best review is the shortest it's one. It's the shortest. That's right. After you've seen the film, the best review is the longest one. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. It is. So you know, with with music, if you've if you've arrived at a conclusion about a piece of music and you've known it long enough, you've lived with it long enough, and you're 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 still interested in it, you will read a review about it. You know, quite happily because. You've decided you like it, and and you know the the, the review might enhance your enjoyment. Yeah, it, it might point out some perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Seen. Or it or it might challenge it or whatever. But you're not sitting there going, "Tell me, give me permission to like it." Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Which I think was a, was the thing that a lot of people still look look to reviews for. So you know, I've got. To and another it. thing I think is 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 that is is that we've become mistrustful of the fact that people review these things really really quickly. You're reviewing a stream, you're reviewing a record that you've only heard about once, and you've got to yeah. do it because you know the I don't know uncut or the Sunday Times, or whatever. gonna reviews, you've got to get it out very briefly. When I was the editor of Q, we had a little thing where we re-reviewed records that we'd reviewed three months or six months beforehand. Thought that was really that was really valuable actually. Yeah. And actually look we've been living with these records now for 6 months and we can honestly say they really are good or actually we might have been a bit a bit subtle. Well it, no. the the only thing that matters with a record is are you still playing it 3 months later. Yeah, absolutely because if you've stopped playing it 3 months later you, your enthusiasm yeah, wasn't, yeah, yeah. wasn't justified in the first place, you know. And uh you know so um I think there's You know, I think there's stuff that you can be tempted to read and will find it worthwhile and so forth. But what is not worthwhile is this kind of processing of, here we go every week, here's another 10 records, you know what I mean, that are just... just uh, reviewed out of obligation, and uh, you well, know, there's yeah. still some value in people following certain critics. You know, I, I really love Alexis Petridis, uh, the Guardian Observer, and you know, so if if he has anything to say about anything at all, I always I'm quite interested in reading. It Doesn't no, necessarily mean sure. I'm going to go and read the the the, the album yeah, or hear the yeah. album. Yeah, I read Anthony me. Lane's film reviews in the New Yorker, and I don't go and see. Yeah. In more than, you know, 5% of the films he writes about. But he's a brilliant reviewer, and he's always got something interesting to say about them. And he always rises above the, um, the cliches. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is very, very difficult to do, because if you're reviewing, here's, you know, generally speaking, if you're reviewing records all the time, really all the time, you're unlikely to be getting better at it. You're probably getting worse at it. Because you're, you're getting, getting just, less enthusiastic about you ju- you lose it. You you're losing. becoming spot. a chore. Honestly. You know, I used to find this there's reviewing the singles, you know, on the when you did it for weekly music podcasts, did it for smash or whatever. The temptation is just to slag things off because it's so much easier. Well, so you're gonna have something to say. Something to say. You know, it's much easier to be horrible. <laughs> and it's really hard, you know. That's the great truth about, about reviewing the yeah. singles. Everybody in the world used to think, if I could do that, I'd I'd die happy if I could do that. Really. I know. And you know, most people just, you know, they just wanted to shoot themselves after they'd done it three times, you know, because... Have you ever oh, been a yeah. restaurant critic? I was a restaurant critic no. briefly. And in a very short space of time, I, I would sit there going, oh, no, this is ruining my meal. Yeah. I've got to think how to describe these cool sheds. You know, I just want to just eat <laughs> them and talk to my pal and have a glass of wine. Uh, yeah. So we shouldn't be complaining. I mean, there are, as we said at the top of this, there, there, are, there are very few better jobs than the New York Times film critic. But Tony Scott, A.O. Scott, has given it up, and uh, I, I kind of admire him for it. Get your
2: application in. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string.
0: So the news in, well, this morning, actually, the, the day we're recording this, about Seymour Stein... Which is very sad older than I thought actually 80 I think he was mm. but do you remember we had Seymour Stein on word in your ear we interviewed him in the, in, in the pub in Islington mm-hmm. in what it was 2018 I remember it really well for various reasons one extraordinary thing that he had, and how many people can say this? This is a select club. He'd met Buddy Holly. Yes. No, many of Got them. a job. <laughs> at the age of 13, he got a job, a sort of an evening job, helping out on Billboard magazines. He was so obsessed by charts. And, he is, right? yeah. and they let him um, you know, help compile the charts and, and help work out the picks of the week for the records that they were rooting for for, for the radio uh, playlists. And uh, one of those days, when I think he was 15 or 16, Buddy Holly came into the office. That's an amazing thing. That's quite something. We yeah. met somebody who'd met Buddy Holly. That was incredible. But the other thing that was interesting was he talked to him, we asked him a lot about what criteria he used to sign people. And, you know, in case people have forgotten, you know, Siebel Stein, president of Sire, also the vice president of Warner Brothers, he signed um, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, Madonna. He signed uh, Depeche Mode and the Smiths and uh, The Cure and The Undertones and all sorts of people uh, later, uh, Echo and the Bunny Man and uh, Everything But The Girl From America. But we, we asked him about signing, and he said the main thing, he said there's two things. One is songs. If they were people who were going to be songwriters, if they hadn't got songs that were good enough, there was not going to be enough of a foundation to build on, which I thought was a mistake. But his main thing was ambition. And he said... If you could tell that somebody had the drive, they had he described Madonna when he met her, and he, he he was given a demo of Madonna when he just had open heart surgery and he was in hospital and he said, I need to see this girl right now. And she was brought into his hospital ward. And he was so, he'd only got this one demo, and he you know, didn't think the singing was particularly fantastic, but he said that it was there were good songs. He said, Her ambition was so incredible he said she she would have walked across fire to have success Mm. and then somewhere in the in the podcast that we we did with him he said uh and the book that he wrote actually he, he said that ambition is basically dissatisfaction with where and who you are you are born with demons that you have to harness before they kill you I thought that was really interesting because, yeah. you know, that's the thing you can tell. Okay, if there's some songs there and they, as long as they're capable of writing something, they could be improved. Musicianship and all that and stagecraft, those things can, can be learned. Yeah. But if you don't have this absolute desperation to succeed, you know, you may not be worth investing in. I thought that was really interesting. I was thinking about, in the context of something else this last week, I was thinking about the, the wonderful piece I read years ago about Ivan Lendl, a former Wimbledon champion, whose daughters are very good golfers. And a big feature I read about him where he talked to, to a, uh, a, a kind of talent spotter in the tennis and golf arena about how they identified potential champions. Yeah. And they said, don't particularly look for talent Talents, you know, everywhere. (laughs) There's tons of talent. Yeah. What I look for is mad parents. Oh, wow, that's good. Mad parents. Now go and look at all the big stars. Go look at Jenny Murray. And and Richard Williams, you know. Yeah. and, And golf and all. It's mad parents. It's people who prepare to just almost destroy the family when the child is young to drive them yeah. to go and do what you need to do, to go and oh, live goodness. in a foreign country, because that's the way you'll get to be yeah. top of the tree. And it doesn't even occur to them what would happen if this went wrong. You know, it just does No, it's only one option. You've got to try. At least at least yeah. you try and if you fail, you fail. So, so you most, could say the same about the Beach Boys, you could say the same about the Jacksons. Yeah. You could say, I mean it's like God, this is a this parallel could be extended all over the place. Most of us are too sensible, you know, to ever to ever allow our children to be that that devoted to one thing, you know. But some people are not like that at all, you know. Um, yeah. So Seymour Stein, yes, um, that's uh, you know. That's, that's There's the, bits end of bits the of the podcast era. where he talked about um, going over to to see bands to sign them. And this is the end of an era, too. There's, he gets the call from... A lot of what he did was to, just to trust the opinion of various people. Danny Fields, who told him about the Ramones, the talking heads, and Daniel Miller, who tipped him off about Depeche Mode, and Jeff Travis about the Smiths. But he said, Depeche Mode is a classic example. He's told, come and see this band. You've got to sign them for America. He said, when are they next playing? He said, they're playing this evening. And he, he said that he rang up Concord, and this is obviously fiction because he said it cost eight thousand dollars return. This is just nonsense. It would not have been eight thousand dollars in nineteen eighty-one. But anyway, he flew by Concord and got to Basildon in Essex that evening in order to be able to see Depeche Mode. And I love that, that those kind of stories. You know, I mean, I'm sure if, if Depeche Mode knew he was coming and he couldn't get there till the next day, they would have put on a gig for him. They would have gone played some other some local pub or something. But still, I like the idea that that's how bands were signed. People charging across the, the, the ocean with a gigantic checkbook, you know. So yeah. it's still part of that old uh, romantic tradition. It's a good story. A good so, story. talking of legends of rock and roll, uh, this we also saw the pa- passing of Keith Reed, the man yes. who uh, who, um, who wrote White Shade of Pale and Bomberg yeah, yeah. and no end of, uh, well, wrote the lyrics. I mean, he's. Is a kind of almost unique case, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Somebody who wrote the lyrics for a very su- 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 successful band. Um, I suppose Robert Hunter who did the same thing for the Grateful yeah. Dead, didn't he? Uh, and obviously, Bernie Taupin with Elton John. But um, and who was it who wrote those Cream lyrics? Um, Pete Brown. Pete, Pete Brown, Brown wrote quite a few, not all of them. Yeah. Um Wrote some of the some of the better known ones. Um, but you know Keith <laughs> Reed always said you know don't try people still trying to ask him what it meant like I never know I never know why people are bothered about what whiter shade of pale well light. all the songs that you remember all the, all the lyrics that's why Dylan by the way Dylan was so successful. he had no idea what he was writing about what was it we skipped the light fandango turned cartwheels I across was, the floor I was feeling 16 kind of festival yeah crowd called, called, out, called for out for more, more. And, yeah, you know, when a 16, what, 16 virgin, vessel virgins who were leaving, were for, leaving the for the coast. And uh, and when I, I thought my eyes were open, they might just, they might as, just well as well be well closed. closed. And so it was that later when the Miller told his tale. The Miller told his tale, brilliant love. That her face at first. The first just, just ghostly. Coastly, turned a white. show a of white the hell. Hell. And he just kind of gave those to Gary Brooker and said, see what you can do with it. So the Miller told his tale was brilliant. Because I remember at the time that anything with a literary <coughs> reference in it, and anything that sounded faintly druggy, the room was humming harder as the ceiling flew away. Do you remember that? But anything with literary references... We called funny, that for another Dylan? drink the waiter brought tray. That's it. <laughs> but Dylan was all F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot and all those kind of things. You felt they were just a, a notch above, didn't they? Yeah. It's a brilliant lyric. Yeah. Fantastic. You better, you better, what is it? You better take off your Homburg because your overcoat is too long. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the follow-up. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you must have written the lyrics for, um, for uh, you know, A Salty Dog and all that. Yeah. God, you know, that's great stuff. It is. And, uh, and, um, and I think I'm right in saying that A Whiter Shade of Pale is the most played record in the history of the BBC radio. Really? Yes. They gave it... They gave it a plaque or something about ten years ago because you know it gets rolled out absolutely all the time. Wow! And got you know played tons back in the day and still gets played tons now. You know, wow. so it obviously provided a very good living for a, for those people whose name was attached to it. And then argued about it in court was a fairly vigorously. Well, Matthew Fisher. Matthew Fisher it. claimed he'd, he'd written the. Well, he got gone do, and Matthew Fisher, he did he played the organ part. Um, did get retrospective. But he got forty percent royalty in yeah. yeah. the end. he, bet he only got. Was it forty percent? Yeah, it was it, was I mean, a, of the compositional royalty. But he only got it beyond a certain date, didn't he? Yeah. So it, was, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't back-paid. backdated. It wasn't backdated. Still worth having. So uh, Keith Reed, and the most famous japanese musician yeah you that Akimoto. Akimoto. yeah um what a huge name he was when we were at smashes do you remember when he made records with him? it? was merry christmas to lawrence and then there was he made that record with, uh, with david Sylvian. you know so i really remember i think it was computer game coming out about 1979 1980 that's a fantastic record do you remember that what do you mean craftwork? No, no, it was a computer game by Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, was it? No, that no, was computer love I showed my stupidity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. With that little kind of oriental theme to it. It was really brilliant. And they were, and there weren't any many groups because the big wave of electronic groups, the human league and the Depeche mode, and you know, Eurythmics and all that it all happened in the early eighties. And this was um this was late seventies, wasn't it? You know? Yeah, it was a band yeah. With no drums. It was all Rolands and Korgs and Syndrome. So it was really ahead of the game. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Very young. The Word Podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. Any the other business. We're joined by Alex Gold. Hello. I, I wanted to mention the uh, piece in The Guardian recently, which I thought was fantastic, which reminds you of just how, how much of us is invested in the idea of, of, of album sleeves. Do you remember when they, there was all that stuff about the, the white VW Beetle on the cover of Abbey Road? And they discovered that it had been it was owned by a local resident. It's got it been sold at auction in 1986 for $23,000. I think it's now currently on display in the Volkswagen Museum in Wolfsburg, Germany. It is. And, uh, and interesting, of course, you could see its uh, registration plate, which was LMW281F, which you wouldn't be allowed to do now. You would not be allowed to put a car on the cover of a sleeve without, without, uh, without erasing the uh, thing. But no, what, what made me think of that was that the, the Guardian piece was about. The Volkswagen van, the camper van that appears on the cover of Freewheeling Bob Dylan. And uh, it's the same sort of thing. There's now been a big thing trying to work out who it belonged to. And it uh, just randomly was parked when uh, Dylan and Susie Rotolo are walking down this, this Jones Street, photographed by Don Hunstein. And uh, they discovered it was owned by a local butcher, they called Jack Ubaldi. And uh, he had a store called the Florence Prime Meat Market at 5 Jones Street, which served Jackie Kennedy Onassis and uh, Lily Tomlin and all sorts of people. Anyway, he owned this band. And it uh, just happened to park there that day. And uh, a year later, it was sold. And the, 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 they're trying to find out now if it's still around, Why well, has it been sent to the crusher? And I just love the idea that we are all these years later. What is that? I mean, that's 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 sixty, 60. years later. Yeah, yeah. We're sitting here talking about a car that happened to be randomly parked on the cover of an album. So I love it. It's fantastic. It's twelve-inch immortality, isn't it? it is. It's the you know, if you appeared. Bit... If yeah. something appeared on the cover of an album, it it, it, it attains a, a, an immortality that nothing else matches, actually. No, it doesn't. A book cover doesn't no, it doesn't that at all, you know. Um, and I suppose also it's in, if it's a big album, it's in so many homes, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's a, they're the most widely seen form of popular art, aren't they? Or they were. Yeah, back back in the days, uh, back in the days when they existed. Now I've forgotten what the story was. And I was trying to think when I wrote a thing about Abbey Road for the Radio Times on the fiftieth anniversary, so that's two thousand and nineteen. And I think I mentioned the VW, and the guy got in touch who owned it. Oh, really? It's fantastic. Yeah, he was he was still with us, you know, because <laughs> there was some detail on what I can't even remember. Um can you imagine how he felt he just happened to park it there that afternoon at that moment? And I think there's some shots for taking, I don't know, just before they walk across the crossing, whatever, and I don't think it's in those shots. So it's just, just for a fleeting moment, and there it is, nailed for eternity. Absolutely for <laughs> so oh, nice. eternity. Because there's also a guy, an Abbey Road um engineer who um that day. Was taking his car to go and run an errand for his mother and happened to be driving up Abbey Road in the distance just as the picture is taken. So the old family car is in there, is frozen for all time. Wonderful, it's like it's like the ultimate surveillance picture, isn't it? It is. (laughs) I've it's really like Google Street Maps pictures where they kind of you, nail people doing idiotic things yeah. outside sort of houses. Yeah, 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 yeah. fantastic. So, so Alex is back from a life on the ocean wave, you get you get your land legs again,
2: Alex. Oh yeah, I got back this morning, and uh, it feels lovely, lovely, lovely to be back in the in the normal Muggle world. And uh, yeah,
0: it's uh, what, what's the thing you're most looking forward to here about not being on a luxury liner. Not being on a luxury liner, (laughs) that's
2: in general. (laughs) Being able to go for a walk in the country.
0: I can, yeah, I can leave, I can enter or leave a town when I please. Um, uh, You don't have a tannoy telling you to go to, uh, you know, emergency stations every 20 minutes
2: No, nope, i can cook a meal uh, i don't have to play hey dude for the next uh, god knows how long <laughs> <laughs> the, benefits
0: the benefits are many the benefits are many yeah it's nice to be back that's for sure Oh, well, nice to have you here so what have we got to talk about in any other business we've got to talk about june the third june the third which is uh word in your park Yep. And if you haven't already get, got your tickets, do so quickly. Uh we've um we've we've announced some of the some of our guests for the day. Um we've got John Higgs, who's gonna be talking about the Beatles, James Bond, and the British psyche. Uh we've got Leslie Ann Jones who's gonna be talking about the Rolling Stones because it'll be 60 years, is that right? 60 yeah. years. We have another big announcement deep. to make about another big Rob. There's going to be three, it's going to be four main themes.
2: Yeah,
0: about, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Themes, yeah. So so we, yeah. So there'll be further time. announcements in the, in the next week. Uh, but if you want to get on with it, get your tickets. And we'll put the link underneath. If you've never been to this um, event before, you may have heard about it from other people who've, who've been. And we've been uh, very fortunate in the last two years we've been blessed by uh, very clement weather. And, uh, but it sort of doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's, it's under under canvas. It's fantastic. It's, Open-sided it, tents, gorgeous. It's a covered auditorium, um, uh, very comfortable, and we're not afraid to make the boast that it has the most salubrious lavatories of any outdoor event <laughs> in London. Is that it's At true? Least it it? Oh yeah, absolutely. It damn well matters. It does. Not that we're going to be terribly straining anybody's bladder. Because the whole thing starts about two, and finishes no later than four thirty, with an interval in the middle. So you know you can go off. And the rest of the day is yours. The rest of the day is yours. You know London is your, uh, is 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 there uh, at your disposal. So you know come one, come all. Bring the family. Um, you know do join us. It'd be lovely to see people opportunities to get books uh, bought and signed and so forth. And, uh, you know, lots more details coming up over the next few weeks. But all the details and a link to how you can buy tickets directly below this. This
2: podcast was brought to you by The Word.